John 18, verse 1, reading through verse 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? Let's pray. Lord, would you open our eyes to hear your word, to see it, to see the truth, or to come to a place of kingdom clarity? Lord, would you knock out the cobwebs of wrong thinking and wrong living so that we might represent you here and understand the movement and the purposes of your plan in the world? God, arm us with truth for life. Transform us and change our hearts, Lord, as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is, as you know, a firsthand historical account of the events leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. It's a firsthand historical account from someone who was there. John, the writer of this gospel, he appears in verse 15. He is the anonymous disciple. Whenever he refers to, like in verse 15, Simon Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. That disciple is John. So John is here on the ground in the garden. And here he's giving us years later a historical account leading up to the crucifixion of Christ, which is, on the one hand, the most horrible atrocity in human history. The only innocent Son of God, God, the maker of all things. Go back and read John 1, that one, the word which was God. All things came into being through him. He was life and his life was the light of men, that one. The maker of all things was going to be tortured, mocked and murdered, executed at the hands of violent men. That's what was going on in this moment. Apostle Peter, who's also here, would not many moments from now in the book of Acts, he would stand in the open square and with intentional irony, he would proclaim, you killed the author of life. You murdered God. You executed the Son of God. That's what's happening as we're progressing 
in John 18. Now, I think there's a sense in which the wickedness of a crime corresponds to the innocence of the victim. Right. Think about that. It's one thing for a mafia warlord to get picked off in a gunfight in the middle of the streets of some city. It's another thing when a four year old boy catches a stray bullet in the chest. Right. There's there's something corresponding in the in the act when there's an innocent one involved. And this is the only perfectly innocent human being who's ever walked on planet Earth. This is Jesus Christ never sinned, absolutely pristine in his purity. And before we're done in this set of passages, he will be mocked and scorned and scourged and beaten and God forsaken. And he doesn't deserve any of it. He'll hang there as the bishop of the second century said. He who hung the earth is hanging. He who fastened the heavens has been fastened to a tree and he's not even allowed a garment to keep him from view as he hangs naked. And he went on to say, no wonder the lights of heaven turned away and the day was darkened. This is the darkest day in history. And yet, as Christians, we know the significance of this event tells us something else. It's not just the darkest day in history because we've called that dark day Good Friday. Now, why would we do such a thing? Well, because Jesus wasn't dying as a martyr. Good Friday wasn't the day that Jesus showed the world what it looks like to turn the other cheek. There was something deeply significant happening. Good Friday, you might even say better Sunday, was Jesus saving the world. It was Jesus atoning for the sins of every human being who would, in all of history, turn from their sins, put their faith in him alone, receive his acceptance from God. He was doing that in John 18. He was marching toward this mission. That's what he was accomplishing Now, not everybody saw it that way in John 18. Not everybody sees it that way now. There there is kingdom confusion that abounds in our own day and track it all the way back down through the centuries, all the way back to John 18. There's kingdom confusion. Just over 100 years ago, the famous liberal German theologian, Dr. Albert Schweitzer, published his landmark volume called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And in it, he commented famously about what he assumed to be the significance of the life and death of Jesus. His comment goes like this. There is silence all around. The Baptist appears and cries, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus. And in the knowledge that he is the coming son of man, lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. It refuses to turn. That is, during his earthly ministry, he's trying to turn the wheel and it refuses to turn and he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, in other words, instead of bringing in the conditions of that new and perfect age where everybody gets along together, instead of bringing that about in his earthly life, he destroyed it. What a ghastly image. The wheel rolls onward and the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. Now here's Schweitzer's attempted eulogy 
of Jesus. That is his victory and his reign. Now, what's wrong with Schweitzer's evaluation? Schweitzer's fatal flaw is this, that he he believed that Jesus expected to bring about this wholesale cosmic earthly revolution during his life and apart from his death and resurrection. He thought Jesus's main goal was while I'm alive on the earth, I'm going to turn the whole society around. I'm going to usher in a social, political, ethical revolution. And he says at that point, Jesus was was a mistaken idealist. He was wrong. But he would go on to say that that Jesus's death did trigger a revolution, but it wasn't the one Jesus expected to trigger. In other words, for, for Schweitzer, and, and if you listen to this, this may sound familiar, depending on how attuned you are to the cultural voices around us, because this will sound familiar. According to Schweitzer, the significance of the life and death of Jesus might go something like this. When we see the man Jesus, we are struck by the power of a heroic spirit. And that inspires each of us to live differently. Now, that kind of confusion isn't simply belonging to German theologians of the early 20th century. That kind of confusion abounds today, and it abounded in John 18 as well, as I hope we'll see. As we walk through this passage, we're going to see that contrary to the words of Albert Schweitzer, contrary to the actions of Peter, the Pharisees, Pilate, pretty much every player in John 18, contrary to their words and actions, Jesus didn't get caught on the wheel of history. Jesus wasn't a martyr. The ensuing events from Gethsemane onward, this was the hour for which he came. He was here in John 18, marching toward the cross on purpose. This is why he came. Jesus' self-understanding was, I've come to drink the cup. I volunteered for this. Read Hebrews, where he responds... From heaven. And he says, behold, it is written in the scroll of the book. I have come to do thy will, O God. That's Jesus on the ground in Palestine. So let's let's walk through this together. As we as we come to these opening verses, these first few verses, what we see is. Is a gathering of people marshalling together to bring down Christ. You know, we go every other year. We're going to be going next year to together for the gospel conference. It's a conference that calls together uh, pastors, leaders from all kinds of denominational backgrounds. We would have vast differences on a number of important theological issues and biblical issues. But we have in common the most important thing, namely the gospel. And we worship the same Savior and we love him because of what he's accomplished for us in his finished work on the cross. And so we put aside our differences for a few days and we glorify the Lord together. And then we leave and say, OK, why again are you Presbyterian brothers baptizing babies? <laughs> and we have this because those are important conversations to have, but they're not as fundamentally important as the gospel. So we have this together for the gospel conference. We all come together. Well, this is, if you will, a together against the gospel conference. You know, when I watched cartoons growing up, my favorite episodes, and they only came on rarely, but my favorite episodes were when there would be this 
this force, maybe from another galaxy, this alien force that would come and it would be so threatening to our galaxy that the Super Friends and the Legion of Doom or Batman and the Joker would have to put aside their differences and fight together to bring down that common foe, right? And they would. They would fight together. They would save each other's lives in the process of beating this alien, hostile, opposing, threatening force. And you even wondered. I remember wondering and hoping. uh, I guess I'm an idealist. Hoping maybe at the end of this movie, these guys are going to be friends. Like, wouldn't I think I would like Batman and Joker better than Batman and Robin. Joker, you know, he's got the cool hair and stuff. So that that was something that always kind of I would entertain in my mind. Like, are these guys going to resume this friendship? They saved each other's lives. But always, without fail, they would bring down the hostile force. And as soon as that was over, they would immediately return to their mutual hatred of each other. Well, here we have, as we read these few verses, a collection of people coming together. Jesus is praying with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's probably a gated garden that you could come into and go out of. It probably had walls around it, something like that. It's clearly a place where Jesus frequented with his disciples. You can see that in verse 2. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So it sounds like Jesus would, on a frequent basis, maybe dozens of times, Bring the boys out to the garden. They'd have prayer and worship nights together out under the stars in this walled off, beautiful garden space. And they would pray to God the Father, ask for strength for the mission. They would encourage one another. And Judas had been there before. And Judas knew Jesus well enough also to say that's where he's going to go when he leaves the upper room. So Judas goes off, gets this this band of soldiers. The Greek word for band is, is a technical word that describes Roman soldiers. So we know they're Romans. And it's usually a size anywhere from 200 to 1,000 in force. So here's Judas at the front. You can picture that, this procession. Here's Judas, of all people, and a band of hundreds of Romans behind him. And then there are leaders from the Pharisees, some of the top religious scholars and teachers, and if you will, pastors in Israel. And they're all marching together toward the garden. It really is an astonishing thing to think about. This procession, this particular parade. One wonders if you read this text and you have an understanding of the fact that Jews hated Gentiles and Gentiles were happy to return the favor. You wonder, has this ever happened before? Have these guys ever locked arms and walked together in a common mission before tonight? Here they were. Marching toward Jesus in there together against the gospel conference. And that may sound familiar. There are other parts in scripture where we see together against the gospel conferences. Psalm 2 comes to mind. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? What are they plotting? Who is this? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers have taken counsel together. Now, what's bringing all these kings together? Right. Two months ago, they wanted each other's property. They wanted bigger armies. They wanted your gold, your riches, your wood, your ivory, your marble, your territory. That's what they wanted just a couple of months ago. And now they're all sitting around a table drinking coffee, making plans about what? 
read on in Psalm 2, it says they've taken counsel together against the anointed, against the Lord. This is, this is a foreshadowing of John 18. Here they are together against the gospel. And they say, let us throw off his cords and cast away his bonds from us. This alien threatening force of the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah. And they said, we're going to break the straps off. He's coming to he's coming to tyrannize us. We won't have it. So the kings all assemble together. Next sound that you hear in Psalm two is the laughter of God. He sits in the heavens and laughs and he holds them in derision. God is not intimidated. Look at Jesus's posture. Notice he, he doesn't duck behind the disciples. He doesn't slip over the wall and out into the night somewhere. He stands there. Now, now you might say, well, of course, he's not going to run away. No, no, not of course. He's run away before. He's ducked over walls and fled into the night. Several times before. Matter of fact, interestingly, turn back to John chapter 6. And look at verse 14. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Pretty amazing event there. It says in verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then, verse 15, perceiving then. That they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That's interesting. When Jesus' followers come to make him king and set up an earthly kingdom, he bolts. When his enemies come to crucify him and kill him, he stands forth and volunteers himself. Now, what's going on? Kingdom clarity is what's going on. Jesus knows the difference between his first coming and his second coming. This is an earthly kingdom time. This is death time. This is my hour to suffer time. Jesus knew what was happening. He knew the purposes of his father in the grand scheme of history. He had kingdom clarity. Read with me verses four and five back in John 18. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, knowing everything that was going to he knew the intentions of these men who were coming came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Skip to verse 7. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. It seems that Jesus' question is very intentional. He asks it twice in a couple of verses. They gave the right answer the first time. He asked them again. They gave the right answer the second time. Why is he doing this? I would suggest this, that he's establishing a basis of accountability. You know, the people who are here are here on purpose. They're here intentionally opposed to Christ. It said in verse 4, he knew all that was going to happen. He knew their intentions. They weren't just coming to arrest him. They had other plans in mind. Jesus knew that full well. He wanted them to say his name. Who have you come seeking to kill? Jesus of Nazareth. Say the name. You imagine how widespread Jesus' reputation was in Palestine, all around the region of the Mediterranean? There would have, without a doubt, 
been soldiers, leaders in that core of people standing out in the night in Gethsemane, there would have been people whose relatives were cleansed from leprosy. Whose family members ate miracle sandwiches on the mountainside when Jesus made fed 5,000 people. Jesus, the impact of his ministry would have been known. Was the centurion here whose daughter was made whole? Or were part of his brigade on duty that night? Surely he at least went to the locker the next morning and said, by the way, my daughter's well. Jesus healed her. Were some of those guys here? He's putting them on the hook. There's an accountability that's here. If you follow through and you follow Peter and John who are in this moment, and you follow these same religious leaders in this moment into the book of Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are proclaiming the gospel of the risen Jesus. Making trouble. And then they heal a crippled man. And they're brought in. Before whom? Same players. Caiaphas, Annas. They're mentioned by name in John 18 and in, John, in Acts 4. Caiaphas, Annas, and all of the leadership of Israel. Many of whom would have been there that night in John 18. Stand in front of them. And they're putting these guys on trial. Deja vu, Right? Notice what Peter says in that assembly. Let it be known to all of you. What boldness. And to all the people of Israel that by, note he chooses his title carefully, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Remember that night, fellas? Remember that? When he said, whom do you seek? And you said, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, The God that we share in common, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, we can sing the Shema together. We can say Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That God that we both believe in, there's no contest, there's no difference on that. That God has affirmed Jesus Christ of Nazareth by raising him from the dead. Oops. He raised him from the dead. He has set his seal of approval On the man Christ Jesus. And the man Christ Jesus is up and moving. This guy's healed because of him. He said, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this man, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter is saying, here in Acts 4 and elsewhere, though you don't realize it, you are opposed to the kingdom of God. You stand in opposition to God. God raised Jesus from the dead. Look at verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And then it goes on to say, and I, I think at this point, John, even years later as he's writing this, John would have written this through tears, these next words. And probably even with a sense of how incredible this moment was for him. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. He was with them. Judas. Judas was in the pack. He was one of the disciples. He was a fugitive on the run. He was an enemy of the state. He was advancing the gospel of this Jesus and this Jesus' kingdom was everything. And he would stand out under the stars and pray just with all the rest of us. He would always stand with us. And then an absolute incredibility on John 18's night. He said, Judas, Judas was standing with them. 
all betrayal, all sin is a betrayal of Christ. All sin functionally stands us in opposition to Jesus. The moment we choose to sin, we are in that moment siding with those who hate him. Every time we nourish a thought about the weakness or the sin of another person and we squeeze juice out of that conversation. Wait, I've got some more discernment on that. Let's keep talking. Every time we do that, we are siding with those who oppose Christ. Every time we trivialize the name of God, we stand with those who oppose Christ. Every time we neglect to confess our sin when we have opportunity to say, last night I mishandled my kids. Last night I spoke demeaningly to my wife. Every time we duck sin and don't come forward and confess and receive grace, we are for the moment siding with those who hate Christ. Before this whole episode is done, think about it. There will be functional opposition to Jesus all over the place of a number of different stripes and kinds. Jesus will be betrayed by Judas. He will be opposed by the Pharisees and the religious leaders. The high priest will talk down to the great high priest. A little Roman king, a little Roman official and ruler will mock and speak demeaningly to Jesus Christ. Jesus' own people will reject him. His disciples will abandon him. Peter, even Peter, sword swinging, William Wallace wannabe Peter. Even Peter will deny him. Before we're done, look, you might be here this morning and and you might say, "Okay, I don't. It's true. Honestly, I don't center my life around Jesus Christ. But I don't oppose him. The opposition can assume a hundred faces. What do you do with Jesus Christ? Have you. Thought long and hard about the significance of the death and resurrection of the only Son of God. If not, why not? Have you thought to ask the one who made you what he wants you to do with the life that he's given you? That he's given you? Or, or are you like hundreds, perhaps thousands of people? In Jerusalem, scurrying in and out of the city, walking just outside the gates of the city near Golgotha and look over and glance at Jesus and go on shopping. Glance at Jesus and go on doing life as though his death was irrelevant. Go and hear a message. Go and attend a church and hear some things about Jesus and then leave and live as you please, as though Christ has no claim on your life. Friend, that's opposition. That's opposition. This is the Lord. He owns it all. Abraham Kuyper said that there's not one square inch in all of creation to which Jesus Christ does not say, mine, that belongs to me. He owns everything, including you and me. He has a claim on your life. We owe him our existence. Every breath that we breathe is given as a gift of his grace and patience that we would respond to him. 
This is the Lord. He not only made us, but died to purchase forgiveness for all of our sins. If we would turn to him away from sin, trust in him. Listen, in a nominal culture like ours. We need to bear in mind that we endanger our souls every day that we live in functional opposition to Jesus Christ. This is a reality. He is who he is. Whether that opposition is loud atheism, right? The many faces, loud atheism, quiet indifference, busyness of life, culturally convenient religious association. They all lead to the same end. They all, at the end of the day, position you in opposition to Jesus. Judas stood there with them. In verse 6, something awesome, truly awesome happens. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, I am he, it actually in the Greek says, I am. It's it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament covenant name of God. This is the sacred name of God, God's, God's sovereign name. It's associated with the sovereign power of God. When Moses went to go bring the children of, Egypt, uh, children of Israel out of Egypt and he said, Who shall I tell them has sent me to do this? And God said, Tell them I am has sent you. Tell them ego a me. These same words. Tell them I am. That's my name. Tell them, he goes on to say, tell them the Lord has sent you. This is my name, he said. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the sigh, the, 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 the sovereign high name of God. And Jesus invokes it to refer to himself. He says, I am. This is the voice of the Lord in the garden. You know something about the voice of the Lord? Follow the resume of the voice of the Lord back through the Old Testament. Land in places like Psalm 29 where you find out what the voice of the Lord can do. Flashes forth in flames of fire. His voice rumbles like thunder. It's like a sound of mighty waters. It, it splinters the trees, the cedars, even the cedars of Lebanon, the hardest Cedars in the world, it splinters the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord, it says, shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. It doesn't just shake the wilderness of Kadesh. It shakes, the, it shakes the Garden of Gethsemane. Because when the voice of the Lord was uttered that night, glory broke through. See, in Jesus' ministry, there is a remarkable humility and meekness because his Glory, untold, incomparable glory is buried under veil after veil of his humanity so that the prophet Isaiah can say he had no outward appearance that we should desire him. And yet there are these moments where cosmic reality breaks through and you see, wow, you're not just a man. And and, and in this moment, Jesus says, I am and the voice of the Lord Blows through the garden and it knocks everybody on their backs. The miracle isn't that they all fell down. It's that they got back up. This is the voice of the Lord. Another astounding thing in this moment is that they got back up. And what did they do? They resumed the arrest. They were laying on their backs. 
They were laying on their backs. All of them fell down and then they dusted their swords off and said, where were we? Look, this is a testimony, one more biblical testimony of the depravity of the human heart apart from the grace of God. How defiant is their unbelief as they get back up and say, Jesus of Nazareth. He asked them the question instead of cowering in fear and saying, is it going to happen again? They just said it again. Jesus of Nazareth. That's who we came for. Jesus' next move, you see, in verse 8 and 9. He answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Notice the, the significance that John attaches to that. In verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. In other words, what Jesus is doing in this moment is he steps forward for his arrest and he opens the back door for his disciples to be able to get out unharmed. And Jesus apparently was even thinking of their physical well-being. As he said, I have not lost one of my disciples. Who knows if Jesus hadn't said this. Maybe John's gospel never would have been written. He might have died in Garden of Gethsemane that night. Jesus steps forward to say this so that it might be fulfilled that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I've not lost one. Now, that brings us to verse 10. And the three words, then Simon Peter. Those three words, it's like once upon a time. Those words always open up interesting stories and entertaining events, right? Then Simon Peter. You might know somebody like that. Maybe you're that person that, that people have stories about you. You're that guy. Like, oh, you have a Jerry story? I've got three Jerry stories. I'll tell them when you're done. And, and people just have stories about you. You tend to either be the fumbling person or the life of the party. Well, Peter was that guy. Right. Peter, if he could have read the New Testament, probably would have on frequent occasions said, oh, John, not that one. No. <laughs> oh, pa Paul, you had to go there. You had to tell him that one. Because time after time, it's like he just keeps getting it wrong. He wants to get it right so often and he just keeps fumbling and getting it wrong. Now, the guy definitely had outdoorsman skills. He was a phenom. I'm sure he could have he could talk sportsmanship game, hot spots for fishing, throwing techniques with the best of us, right? The best of the guys are the Todd Massons, the Perry Fries. He could sit down and talk for hours about that kind of stuff. He was a skilled sport. He probably could have hooked Malchus's ear and ripped it off. <laughs> he, he probably could have thrown a net over eight or nine guys and bought Jesus some time to get away. But who in the world sold him a sword? You could just you could just see Peter there. You know, he's probably as a gladius, a little short sword. You could hide it under your tunic. I can just see him there, heart pounding out of his chest, saying to himself, wait for it. Wait for it. And then letting out a warrior cry, slicing off. Malchus's ear goes down to the ground. You know, Malchus's ear getting sliced off is not probably a testimony of his accuracy to be able to slice the ear away from the head. It's probably more a testimony of his ineptitude and lack of coordination to miss the head. He doesn't belong here, right? 
But this is a kingdom miscue. He misfired. He, he wasn't opposed to Jesus. He just watched too many movies. Right? He, he was confused about the kingdom. And you can see that that's exactly the case because of Jesus' response to him. Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, shall I, shall I not drink the cup? Peter, do you think the crown of glory comes first? No, Peter, crown of thorns, then crown of glory. Peter, that's how it works. I've come here for this. Peter, I intend to die. Don't try to save me. Don't try to buy me time to get out of here. I'm going to die. That's why I'm here. Now, later, interesting, in Revelation 19, when Jesus rides on a white horse and the armies in heaven follow him, he doesn't say, put your swords into their sheath. I'm not here to establish an earthly kingdom. No. He says, take your sword out of your sheath. I'm here to establish an earthly kingdom. Whatever that means to take your sword out and the symbolism or whatever of Revelation 19, Peter needs to know in John 18, this isn't that. These are two different days. Peter, it's not the time for that right now. Now, this point really brings us all the way to the end of John chapter 18 and explains everything that transpires in between. It's interesting to think about whether or not the Pharisees would have opposed Jesus the way they did. Had they truly grasped the significance of who he was and what he had come to do this time? Would the high priest have demeaned him in the way that he did? Would he have allowed that man to strike Jesus on the face if he knew he was talking to the great high priest? If he knew, I'm, oh, this is the one. I'm a foreshadow. I'm a, I'm a small representative of the one who is to come who will offer the perfect sacrifice for God's people and sanctify them forever. Would he have done that had he grasped, truly grasped that? Would Pilate have spoken to Jesus the way he did if he realized within three days Jesus would sit on an everlasting throne and that Jesus in Acts 17 would be the name against everyone would stand in judgment. It's not as hypothetical a question as you might think. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, if Annas, if Caiaphas, if Pilate, if Herod had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Kingdom confusion. And not just them. Think about the disciples. Think about Peter. Would Peter have cut off the ear of Malchus if he realized that Jesus actually intended to die? He didn't need an escape hatch. He was going in to die. Would he have denied Jesus Christ if he would have realized and believed in that moment in his heart? Jesus will be back up and kicking in three days and he will ascend to the father and be coronated king over all the kings. 
Lord over all the lords. Would Peter have acted in this way? You see how kingdom confusion abounds everywhere in John 18? You just read all the subheadings and think about it in light of what we just said. Jesus before the high priest. Peter denies Jesus. The high priest questions Jesus. Peter denies Jesus again. Jesus before Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. Every heading here shouts of the confusion of kingdoms. They didn't understand who Jesus was and why he was here for the first time. Look in Jesus' own words. The end of John 18, verse 35. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Can we all say that together? My kingdom is not of this world. I'll go on reading. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Yeah, but Peter didn't. Peter was confused. Peter shouldn't have been fighting. You see? If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Kingdom confusion abounds Here and now, not just in John 18, it blurs our discernment. It makes us dull where we should be sharp, angry where we should be broken. It leads to false expectations, disillusionment, pretense. It leads to temporally focused, self-absorbed lives. What do I mean by pretense? I had a friend in Bible college, and her grandfather was one of the primary speakers in the voice of healing days and movement, a faith healing movement. Clearly loved the Lord, this man. But she told me that he would leave the state to go have a tumor removed. That he couldn't see very well, but he didn't wear glasses on the stage because People should be able to have 20-20 vision, or at least getting there faith by faith by faith. You know, that is sad, that is fake, and that is kingdom confusion. It's a fallen world, bro. Put your glasses on. There's nothing wrong with that. Look, the kingdom hasn't been fully ushered in yet. We're going to have to get along with suffering, with opposition. That's just reality. You hear how how confusing that can get? When we get confused on the kingdom, our theology gets muddy, our actions get muddy, our words get muddy. We start mixing the gospel with politics and assuming that the right bill or the right leader or the right Congress is going to usher in the reign of the kingdom of God on the earth. That's just not reality. That's not how the kingdom functions. We cut people's ears off in our zeal to make sure Jesus isn't scorned by the ACLU. Uh, Insert your lobby group or your cultural icon here. Slicing ears off left and right as though that's going to accomplish bringing in the kingdom of God. It's hard to remember in an environment like the one that we live in, 
But Christians, as Christians, we've got to bear in mind that we are exiles here. Malcolm Mugridge said that the only ultimate disaster that can befall us is to feel ourselves at home here on earth. This is not paradise, if you haven't noticed. This is not utopia. This is not the ushering in of the fullness of the kingdom of God. Listen, don't have a cow when you find out that Muslim faith has grown here and abroad. You think this is the first time in history or the last time in history that the gospel hasn't been the dominant voice of the world? The gospel is always encroaching on territory where where people are opposed to it. If we realized these things, if we had kingdom clarity in this moment, we would walk humbly and winsomely in a world that doesn't know which way is up. It's blind, it's hostile, it's unaware, it's ignorant to the movements and the purposes and plans of the kingdom of God. Look, if we would spend less time shouting at Muslims and spend more time praying for them, they might be here worshiping the one true God with us. If we would spend less time watching speculative YouTube videos and email alarming all of our friends about that and more time actually loving people, caring for them, praying for them, witnessing to them how different things would be. How differently the world would taste the kingdom of God here among us. This world doesn't understand the kingdom of God. And oftentimes we as Christians don't help them. If we understood the kingdom, we'd live upside down lives. We'd speak with such love and courage and humility that it would sound like a foreign accent in this world. We would live soberly and righteously, quiet, peaceful lives, allowing the word of the gospel to cleanse the inside of the cup and to work its way out instead of thinking that we're going to bring in the kingdom of God by pulling switches in a voting booth. That's not the kingdom. That's kingdom confusion. We expect that the peace and righteousness and unity that are hallmarks of the Future age that Christ will bring in are to be the norm now. And so we leave churches because they're full of mean people. As though the next church isn't full of mean people, too, as though you yourself don't have a bit of a catty streak in you. (laughs) Kingdom confusion causes us to be surprised by opposition. Like I have a, a, a first cousin and her husband just got back from Iraq. And he's one of the guys who sits up in the top of the Jeep behind one of those big guns. I guarantee you, his name is Johnny. I guarantee you, Johnny didn't go back to the tents at night with the guys and say, guys, you're not going to believe this. Somebody shot at me. <laughs> Here you're in camos. You spent the day behind a 50 caliber machine gun. They're going to do that. Right? That's going to happen again. We forget all those things in our kingdom confusion. What would our lives look like if we were rescued from Confusion. Let me just run through these really quickly. You can jot them quickly. I put them up here on the screen. We'd relate to non-Christians differently. All of these beg for comment, but think about them, pray about them, study. Our indignant anger would be tempered by tears, brokenness, and burden. Three, we'd mind our affairs and live humble, godly lives. 
for our speech would sound like a foreign accent in this world. Mm. Five, we'd pray differently. We wouldn't spend 90% of our time building fortresses around every entity in our lives to make sure God gets the picture. We don't think suffering is going to help us. We'd, we'd have kingdom clarity. We would not hope in or be fearful of the pendulum of political power. We would not see loss, persecution, or pain as strange. We'd be armed to live distinctly Christian lives and proclaim a distinctly Christian gospel. Look, if we have kingdom clarity, far from being surprised by opposition and suffering, we anticipate it. It's one of the reasons we pray. (laughs) It's one of the reasons we gather. Listen to Peter's exhortation. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, since he suffered, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You see what suffering does? It strips away passion for this world and helps us to be faithful to Christ in this age right now. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's what sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, let me just ask this question. Does that mean that we shouldn't expect the church to be increasingly marked by holiness. Does that mean we should never expect to be healed? Matt, are you saying that's, that's kingdom confusion? Are you saying that's all for later? No, not all. Some of it's for now. The, the power of the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus guarantees that there will come a day where the kingdom will come in fullness. All tears will be wiped away. That day will come. That day is not here now, but it will come. But as a result of the finished work of Christ on the cross and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church, we are called as Christians to give the world a foretaste of the glory of the kingdom of God. We are, we are called to show the world something of what the powers of the age to come have. How do we do that? Look, look, the world should be able to look at us in community as Christians. They ought to be able to look and see imperfect, granted, imperfect glimpses of what love and forgiveness and self-sacrifice and generosity, what those things look like. Why? Because the kingdom of God is established in heaven in fullness. Jesus is on his throne and ain't nobody going to move him off it ever. He is there. That is a powerful, glorious kingdom. And there will be a day when the kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. But look, that kingdom is so powerful that it spills over. It overtops through the Holy Spirit onto the church and through the church affects the world and the communities in which we live. So this isn't just, hey, let's just all wait for everything to happen then. Some of it is supposed to happen now. 
through us, through the church, through Christians. But all that said, the sinful structures of fallen society. The effects of sin and the curse on our bodies, on our brains. They won't be completely toppled until Jesus Christ comes back. Schweitzer was wrong about Jesus. Jesus didn't expect to do all of that the first time he came. He was coming to pay for all of that the first time he came. He was coming to purchase every spiritual blessing that is ours in Christ and that will be fulfilled on that day. He was coming to do that, to accomplish that. He was coming so that having provided our redemption, having purchased glorified bodies, having done that, when the Father says the word, And the curtain comes down on history as we know it. The new Jerusalem comes down and touches down on planet Earth. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever. And all who have repented from sin and put their trust and hope in this Jesus who died and rose again will live forever in harmony, in righteousness, in peace, in joy for all time, throughout all generations. So what now? Hebrews 13, 12 to 13 tells us what now. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us rejoice that we don't have to suffer. No, Jesus suffered. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. Church, there's no evading the pattern of John 18. Gethsemane, Golgotha, glory. That's the pattern Jesus established in John 18. That's our pattern. Listen to this poem about Gethsemane. Down shadowy lanes across strange streams, Bridged over by our broken dreams. Behind the misty caps of years, beyond the great salt fount of tears, the garden lies. Strive as you may, you cannot miss it in your way. All paths that have been or shall be pass somewhere through Gethsemane. All those who journey soon or late must pass within the garden's gate, must kneel alone in darkness there. And battle with some fierce despair. God pity those who cannot say not mine but thine. Who only pray let this cup pass. And cannot see the purpose in Gethsemane. Let us not be surprised by suffering. Let us not be surprised by opposition. Let us in a word. Fix our eyes on Jesus. The author of and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen to First Peter 
chapter 5, verse 1 and 6. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. This is Peter. He was there in John 18. Was he not in this moment remembering John 18? Was he saying, what a night that was as a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. I exhort you in light of that, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. This, this was a seasoned Peter. Peter was probably my age in John 18. As he writes this, he's probably the age of our own Peter. This is, a, this is a Peter who's walked through some life, who's preached the gospel, who's suffered opposition. He's, he's been seasoned. And you know what? What we pick up here as we read this is as Peter is preparing for his own crucifixion, he will not long after this be crucified himself like his Lord. Peter, at the end of the day, his, his kingdom confusion was over. Peter found out what John 18 was all about. Suffering comes first. Then glory. Let's stand. Great creator of the heavens and the earth. You know every star by name Awesome power is revealed in all your works And for 